Okay. Well, if you have a Bible open, uh, please turn to our, our reading there from the book of Isaiah chapter 44. And I want to just uh, skim over uh, the, this reading to get something of its gist. I think verse 5 is where we're going to begin. So if you want to open at the beginning of Isaiah uh, 44. <clears throat> Let me begin by asking you the question, uh, what, what are your plans for uh, the future? It can be a very unsettling time when you don't have it clear uh, what is coming your way. We all want to plan for the best. Uh, we can hope for the best. Nothing new in that. And these words were written to people who are going to be wanting to do just the same thing. But they were to be exiled as Isaiah was writing these words uh, later on, they were going to be exiled in Babylon. And there, the people of God were going to find it hard in exile to see a great future for themselves and their families. But now God gives them a promise in these words of restoration. It still resonates with the same authority and the same power under the Holy Spirit tonight as God speaks through these words still into the life of His people today. And it's, it's like a symphony with many parts in it that help us to, 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 that help us to, to, to reach that future. As families, for those of you who have children, you can see verse 5 has a great part to say there. As a congregation, and even as a society that seeks renewal, there, is great, there are great lessons in how that can be achieved in the words of Isaiah here. So the first thing I want to look at is, is building for the future, building for the future. And uh, what would you want to, to leave your children uh, if uh, you had a will and you were going to leave them something in that? Many a family will struggle over uh, uh, dividing up uh, a will or an inheritance. But if you had uh, any, what, what would you really want to leave them? What would you want to pass on from your life to the next generation? If you had that opportunity as parents, what quality uh, has been important in your family that you really want to make sure the next generation receive? Could be a variety of answers to that, depending on your background. Could be respect. Could be tolerance. Could be a sense of duty, having a moral life and a moral core. You want to teach the next generation, your children, to value their education. And many parents, I'm sure, uh, throughout Dundee tonight, would, would go to great lengths to impart that to their children. But what about the deepest things that uh, will really call the next generation to, to life? as opposed to merely an existence in this world. What is the spiritual legacy that our culture, our time, your city here, what is it going to leave as a spiritual legacy to the next generation that grows up? As a culture, what are we passing on to the next generation? These words give us great hope. These words um, give us tools as well uh, in being able to pass on something of 
infinite value to the next generation. And as we seek to build for the future, there's a the building, uh, as Isaiah lays it out here, <coughs> comes with a promise, uh, and, and, and it's to be built upon a rock. And these two things are mentioned at the beginning of his passage. Look at the, the promise that you've got in verse 5. One thing, uh, one will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. So here's a promise that God's Spirit can so work upon a, a, a generation that's growing up amongst God's people that the next generation will want to completely and wholly identify themselves with the faith of their fathers. Or maybe even skipping back generations, but to the faith of Israel. Uh, faith in this one true God and Creator revealed uh, in their religion. This was the promise then that Isaiah was bringing to them, that the children would want to so identify themselves with the faith of their fathers. Now, that's surely a promise that means everything to any congregation. Whether you will ever have children or not, you will know and understand, I'm sure, that what will make any church grow in part is its internal growth. You can do a lot of evangelism for external growth, and I hope you do that. But you've also got to have the, the internal growth of, of the children. And from what David was saying, you're rather busy at that in this congregation and have a fair number of little sprogs being produced. That's great. And you've got to keep that going. But more than that, you've got to keep them. Because are your children going to follow in your faith. And uh, you may not have children. You may not be married yet. You can be a student here. But you're going to cross uh, this one soon enough, and it will become, believe me, the, the single biggest concern in your life, that if God ever blesses you with children, how are you going to bring them up in the faith that they will know and love Jesus the way you know and love Jesus? That will become your, your great heart's desire stories of parents going to their grave not knowing if their children would follow them in the faith. One of the greatest preachers in the free church in the last 30-odd years was a shepherd from Arden Marken. And when his mother was dying, she called him to her bedside and says, Now, will, will you believe? Will you be trusting in Jesus? And she had to go into eternity without knowing if her son would become a Christian. He did, and became one of the greatest preachers in his time. <clears throat> and that is surely, as a congregation, that has got to be one of the high priorities of this congregation, one of your great central focus, that the faith will be uh, transmitted across the generations. Because it really is a general principle that faith is passed down through the generations. Now, we face some massive cultural changes uh, in Britain that can interrupt that normal progression. So, for example, in my family, my parents were brought up to church, dropped it like a disease. I had no exposure to it, uh, but I remember myself and maybe seven, eight, nine guys converted in Aberdeen as students, all from a similar situation. And it was almost a generational gap. But the normal thing is that Faith should be passed on. We should not expect 
the children, as it were, of the church family to evaporate for a time into the wilderness. Here they are being uh, wanting, they're desiring to wholly and completely uh, self-identify with the people of God. And, and nothing could be greater for your congregation, really, than seeing that. There would be something wrong, wouldn't it, if you were to start evangelizing with all the, 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 the alkies and the addicts and all the people with problems around Dundee, and you could pack this place with them. And I hope you do. But yet you were to lose your children. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? There'd be something far wrong there. But here's a great promise from God, and it's like a lantern in the cultural storms that we are going through to shine like a light that this is what God can do. A great promise. And what could be more important? And for those of you who don't have children, you may never have children. I want you to see God is still calling you to participate in this transmission of the gospel to the children within the church family. If you're students, pour yourself into the youth work of this congregation. Uh, let it be a, a shameful thing if they're ever asking uh, and, and pleading uh, because they're so short of people to help run Monday youth clubs or teach in the Sunday school or anything like that. You've got to value the children of this congregation and be involved in the transmission of faith. And when there are camps to be organized, you've got to be there and keep yourself busy with that work too. Now, that's the promise. And it is a, a powerful promise for, for the church to hold on to, that this is the way it should be. The faith should transmit. That's a promise. But as we know, life can shift underneath us, and we need to build with this promise, and we need to build the promise upon rock. And so Isaiah moves on in verse 8 to talk about that. Like any house, as we're trying to build for the future, we need to make sure the foundations of the house are solid, rock solid. Verse 8, look at the description of God himself. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. <clears throat> God is the rock of our faith. God is often described in the Bible as a rock. <clears throat> Jesus himself, in this great and famous Sermon on the Mount, says that listening and obeying God's work is like, word is like building your life upon the rock upon rock. This is because the Word of God expresses the speaker. It doesn't move. God is eternal. He is unchangeable. He doesn't need to change. You cannot improve upon God, and God cannot become less than He is. He is perfection itself, and He is therefore unchanging, unlike everything else in existence. Everything else changes. But God will not change. And you are called to build your life upon Him. And if you just think about that for a moment, anything else that you're busy pursuing or, or, or chasing after, the best relationships, the best career, the greatest advance in your, your business, or whatever it is, or even in your family, doing your best for your kids, all of that will eventually come to nothing eventually in the, in the big scheme of things. But here, we are being taught that God is real, God is unchanging, God is a rock, and you and I can build and should build our life upon Him. 
And at the end of the day, as Jesus made it plain, it's either building upon him or building upon some alternative to him. But if we build upon him, then I believe it's the only lasting, the key to only lasting real joy that you can ever find. The only place of real peace, because it's the end of fear. Because here will be the relationship, the love of your life that you can never be separated from. It is the utter reversal of what happened in Eden. All our fears that came from being thrown out of that place of safety and fellowship with God in the beginning, all of those fears end when you and I begin to really touch rock and build our lives upon God. Now, you can do that. If you're a Christian, keep that in mind when you're in the, the face of temptation. Even this week, uh, the situation just felt utterly assaulted by the evil one. Oh, Lord, get me out of this. And it was like you saying, no, you don't need to be taken out of it. I've already given you enough. You're standing on rock. So what do you do, Ephesians 6? Stand. Stand and he, the evil one, will flee. Why? Because I'm on rock. You're on rock. And sometimes God is not going to take away your situation or change it dramatically. He'll be doing something in you that you can stand and realize what you are standing on, the rock of the universe, and all hell will flee from you when you take your stand on that rock. Now, that all sounds nice, doesn't it? Kind of cozy thing on a dark night in Dundee to talk about. But it's clearly not always happening today. Certainly society isn't doing it. Even churches aren't necessarily getting right. Christian families may not be building on the rock the way they would like to. So what's going wrong? There is a threat to a, a culture being renewed, as Isaiah is calling the culture of God's people here to be renewed. And that is, there's an alternative future. There is, if you like, an alternative foundation that people can build their lives upon. And although God is like rock, and although He can uniquely bless us, there are many, many alternatives out there that we can look to for stability in our lives. Every friend you have in university or in your workplace, your circle of uh, friends, they are building on something. If it ain't God, it's something else. Jesus suggests this in the Sermon on the Mount. And some want to build their house quickly, so they build on the sand. And thus, Isaiah warns about the danger of these false foundations. And it's an extended part of his chapter, which we're just going to touch on, where he talks about these craftsmen building idols. Um, because through their, their religion, uh, they thought they would gain control upon the gods. They would find that security. They would find that rock uh, that place of refuge through this trade-off in religious terms with the powers that be in the universe, that they could somehow control them, whether it be the forces of nature and the harvest and the rain and the sun, etc. And so you got this extended um, um, attack, really, uh, on the foolishness of such a view of life from verse 12 onwards and the blacksmith making his tools. And there in verse 17 he says, uh, from the rest, as he takes this 
trunk out of the of wood out of the forest and uh, hacks half it up for firewood uh, to cook his meal. And then from the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. Today, there are many idols in Britain that people seek to build the life of their, their own life, their career, their family, some who would want to dictate the entire direction of our culture on these foundations that are not of God. And the Word of God comes to us tonight and says, well, what is it that you're really building upon? Today our idols are very unlikely to be idols of wood and stone, but far more likely to be the idols of flesh and blood. That relationship that you long for, that will, you think will make you complete. Maybe that's the big thing, the big goal in your life. Maybe. Will it? We tend to let other people pick up the slack in our lives in the absence of God. People at this level are all religious, and we search for happiness in whoever or whatever we can find it in. Yet do we ever find that happiness? C.S. Lewis argued in his book, The Great Divorce, that human beings can't make one another really happy for long. And Peter Kreft, a professor of philosophy at Boston University, he fleshed that out further by saying, tremendous disappointments in life have come from believing the opposite. Dictators or gurus, husbands or wives, friends or lovers are treated like gods. To place divine expectations on human shoulders is an infallible recipe for ruin and bitter disappointment. That's the same message as Isaiah. That's what God is saying to us about the alternative foundations. And so he's calling us to think. He's calling our whole nation to really think. What is it building its future and its expectations upon? And verse 19 says there, you know, no one stops to think about the futility of building our lives upon the wrong foundations, upon things that will fade away. That's like building on sand compared to rock. So it's calling us to use the powers of logic, common sense. Compare and contrast with what you get from that with what you're offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in God as rock. He's saying here there's something absurd about this idolatry in our hearts of turning to anything or anyone in our lives in the place of God in our lives. It's building upon sand that shifts with time compared to building upon the one rock in life that is God. And, you know, there could be somebody here tonight. You are doing this very thing, and your idol is a relationship. It's that boy in your class and he ain't a believer, but he's becoming more important to you than God. And he, God is saying, no, just, just stop and think. 
What is he going to give you? Oh, he'll give you a lot, maybe. But what is that compared to what you get with Jesus, with God, with touching upon the eternal rock, a love so divine and so absolute? And at some point, you've just got to stop and you've just got to think it through. So that's how real this is, how easy it is for any one of you to slip into idolatry and start building your foundation upon a very alternative foundation that will one day let you down. And that's why our idolatry is hated by God, because He knows it damages others and it can destroy ourselves. So, let's pause. Is there anybody here tonight who's in that situation? God is saying, daughter, son, think. Think it through. Just almost do the maths. Balance it up. And you'll see. So therefore, the future. We want for ourselves, our loved ones, our children... It needs to be a certain future. And it also needs to be a clean future, one that's cleansed. You go back to, to verse 5, this promise about the children. Well, <clears throat> this warning about idolatry has something even to say there. We can be so naive about human nature, and it's one of the things that really threaten our culture as it loses track of good theology, in a sense, and substitutes new alternative ideas about human nature, that we are really going to be going down the tubes. If we become naive about human nature, especially in children, we will have problems in creating a next generation that we could be, as it were, proud of. Uh, just recently, a doctor, Eric Sigmund, of the, a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine, uh, said, the age at which children, to quote, were violent and disrespectful towards their teachers is coming down to nursery level. He added, they're swearing and throwing chairs at their teachers at younger and younger ages. It isn't surprising that this is happening in a domestic setting. Parent abuse and parent battery appear to be on the rise. And what seems to underlie this is to do with parenting, the lack of boundaries and the reversal of authority. It's the extreme end of the spoilt generation where they actually lash out at parents, almost exclusively their mothers. There's a lack of impulse control, demands for instant gratification, and not accepting deferred gratification. I really hope that doesn't sound like anybody's home tonight. But that's where we apparently are going as a society. And I remember working in the ferry in Inverness that it was not unknown for children coming into nursery to have their own uh, personal psychologists um, on their case because of the difficulties in the family life. But we cannot be um, naive about human nature. And as a congregation, work now with your parents. And those of you who are young parents are going to be soon, do you know 
what's going to be involved. I think this is one of the great callings of the church and a congregation like this is so well situated to get in now because prevention is much better than cure and teach people now how to be parents. I'm seeing more and more cases of very fine Christians who are seriously committed to Jesus but whose, whose, whose children are out of control. And I know a few years down the line, my boy, oldest boy is only six. I may be one of them. But we need to prevent that happening. So I think you've got a, a great opportunity as a congregation to do just that. As God sends you more children, more young families, there will be the core that you build the work upon. They may extend the family network as students come in, and I hope as students, those of you who are students, that you really do connect to families, to younger and older people in the congregation. Do not stay in that huddle. I saw a phenomenal huddle up there this morning. You all had your backs like this, like tortoise with armor plating, and nobody could penetrate that student ring. You wicked lot, you know. mix. It's great. When we were in Aberdeen, the students, the the buzz that we got was meeting with an 80-year-old guy with a monocle who was an ex-missionary from Peru. Sam Will, some of you will know him, Dundee Connections. He had the biggest impact ever on the students. So do that. So there is this danger then of alternative foundations, and because of that, we really need to redeem the future, and that's where uh, Isaiah begins to uh, draw things to that conclusion. Because if you're going to have a house, like any home, you need to have a sewage system that works. And it's installed and works very well. You get that in verse 22. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have, for I have redeemed you. Without this, our homes that we seek to build individually, as a congregational home, a cultural home, the future generation will live in squalor. See, the God that we have sought to substitute things or people for in our lives and forget, He has not forgotten us. When we come to the bread and the wine, it's going to remind you of that so vividly. Because he has come to us in his son, Jesus. And when we come to the table in a few moments tonight, we we look at the, the elements and the bread and the wine on that table, and we see there marks of a really terrible family meal at one level. There we see the torn body of the son who is willing to lose touch with his father in those dark hours when he hung upon the cross. And there you see God the Father uh, has dealt with the Son as if he was the sinner, as if he was the one who had committed all your sins and my sins, as if Christ was the idolater. And you see the wrath poured out, and it's torn bread, and it's wine that's poured out because it was a violent, awful death. And yet that physical violence of, 
of Calvary was nothing compared, if you like, to the spiritual violence of one becoming sin under the wrath of God in those dark hours. And there Jesus substituted Himself in our place to pay for our substitution of false gods for the real God. So, if any of you have made that mistake, if any of you are beginning through your relationships or through some other means, beginning to substitute someone in your life more important to you than God, repent now. In the moments of this time of worship in the presence of God, and see He is your Redeemer, and He's calling you back to fidelity and faithfulness as His bride, really. And then take that token of the bread and the wine. And yet, though it is a violent reminder of what happened at Calvary, it is still a family meal tonight. Like any good family, they should eat their meals together. That was a good sign when families do that. Because it is a family meal, because Christ now, through His death on the cross, has reconciled us to the Father. That's the fact. And this meal tonight speaks of the healing the gospel brings to our lives. It symbolizes how we renew a society and how we build a future through His great work on the cross so that He can truly there um, wipe and sweep away our offenses like a cloud. That's what you've got there. And so all the damage caused by sin, by building upon false foundations, being swept away like the morning mist. And if you've got sin in your life right now, repent right now. Return right now. And um, again, come to Him tonight as your God and your Father, your rock and your Redeemer. And just as you stretch out, as it were, with your dirty hands, celebrate the pure, sweet grace of this salvation. And let Him give you strength and grace to repent and be renewed and move on. If you're in a sinful pattern of behavior that you cannot break by yourself, you have a family, a church where there's accountability and support. You may need to speak to someone. Do that too. But this meal speaks of our future, the ultimate future, even beyond the promises of Isaiah here. Jesus Himself said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. There is a greater future still to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Only He can provide us with that ultimate future. So, with Him, we are clean. Our children can be clean. They will identify themselves with the faith. Our homes, as it were, can be clean. Our future can be clean. So, what are your plans for the future? For yourself, for your family, if you have one, for this congregation, for your loved ones. Let that future be built upon rock.
That's what we have tonight in the gospel. Access to the God who is a rock. Everything else is sinking sand. But he is a rock. As you take the bread, as you drink the wine, you are, as it were, touching rock again. And if you are a Christian, then the, the table is open to you. You may not be a member in this church. You may be a member in another branch of Christ's church. But please, um, participate and celebrate this family meal that really speaks of our united future together as the people of God. If you are not a Christian tonight, then I would ask you not to take the bread and the wine. I would ask you to take something better. I would ask you to reach out with the hand of faith and take Jesus Christ as your Savior and Redeemer. That will be your way of touching rock tonight. And then maybe the next time you will also be able to touch, as it were, these elements, these symbols of his body and blood of his death that brings us life. This is the Word of God. This is what says to us, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Celebrate now that redemption in this meal that we share together. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.